Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as always, we pray for insight and understanding into who you are and into who we are and into these relationships you're calling us into with you, with ourselves, and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's already been a good day together. Child dedication, so great to see Kennedy. Thank you, family, again for coming to be with us today. We're looking forward, as Michelle already mentioned, to, uh, to uh, baptisms. It's a great week here in New York. I mean, what, is there a better day than today? For those who are on Zoom with us, it's beautiful. I hope it's beautiful where you are. It's beautiful here in New York. It's Fleet Week, by the way. Do we have anybody here visiting with Fleet Week? All right. Hey! All right, there we go. All right, let's see. <laughs> Thank you for coming today. What, what, what ship are you on? Fantastic. We're honored to have you here today. We're glad everybody's here today. It's a beautiful day. We're going to have a good time celebrating a baptism, but just want to share a word from our text of emphasis with you today. So we're uh, celebrating the Pentecost today. So Pentecost is a uh, celebration that our Jewish friends got started. You know, it came 50 days after the end of Passover. And then Christians adopted Pentecost as a day of celebration because it was, for all intents and purposes, the day on which the church was born. 
The church was born on Pentecost. Uh, 50 days after the, the, uh, the resurrection, the disciples were together, and uh, they gathered together in uh, their little apartment together, and you, you read this story. And so it's the birthday of the church. Now, as we read that text, there's a bunch of highlights, things that jump out to us. First of all, uh, Jesus' prediction was fulfilled. The, uh, the prediction that uh, when he left, the third person, the third uh, part of the God family was going to come and be a part of the church. And so you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead showing up in a very tangible way. Jesus had predicted this was going to happen, and it did happen. And so this is also the first post-resurrection widespread communication of the good news about what Jesus has done. We didn't read Peter's whole sermon. You can go read it later in the rest of Acts. Uh, he's talking about what Jesus had done and what it meant for all the people gathered there. But this is really the first time when you get this public proclamation about what Jesus had done. So Acts chapter 2 is dealing with all kinds of uh, things. The good news of the work of God was beginning to be communicated to the broader world. In one sense, Jesus' other prediction that the gospel would go into the, all the world was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost because as the text said, and it emphasized this, that there were people from all over the then there, the known world were together in Jerusalem for Pentecost, which reminds us that also that God is strategic. God knows what he's doing. It was, he sent the spirit on a day when everybody for, or representatives from around the world were gonna be in one place. And so the imagery is that you have the disciples there together and almost like the, the doors and windows were blown open and the people in the, in, the, in the marketplace are overhearing the disciples having this experience where they're communicating the good news and they can hear them in their own tongue. And so we also learn, hey, when God gets involved, when the spirit gets involved, humans are enabled to do things that they are not able inherently to do on their own, right? Miraculous things happen. They didn't quickly uh, learn the languages. They're speaking, and people are able to hear in their own language uh, the words from the disciples. So this is all on Pentecost. This is why this day is considered the birthday of the newborn church. So we learn that God empowers people when the Spirit gets involved to do things that they cannot inherently do on their own. Now, of particular interest for us today, so we're, we're, we're ending one season of our, our teaching series on the Easter season. It's coming to an end today, and we're looking forward to starting next week uh, a new series on uh, developing your own spiritual life. So we're going to talk about some practice today. So today we're tying those two things together, the Easter season and the specific emphasis on what the implications of the resurrection are for, for us, and we're looking forward to talking about how we can grow in Jesus. And so a particular interest is how the disciples got to where they got to in Acts chapter 2, where God gets involved in a very tangible way. I think if you're a person of faith, regardless of your uh, religious background, but particularly if you're a Christian faith, we look at Acts chapter 2 and we say, wow, where is this uh, today? Uh, God getting so tangibly involved in a person's life. If you ever prayed for, before, I would imagine that you long for an experience like is described in Acts chapter 2. God kind of coming and kicking in the door and taking care of business, right? I imagine you've had a prayer where you wanted God to intervene in a very particular way, to show up in a, very, in a very particular way. And so how did the disciples get to the point that they got to in Acts chapter 2 where God did show up in a very, very tangible way? So 
in order to discern that, we actually have to go a few verses uh, backward. And so in Acts chapter 1, we learn what preceded the events of Acts chapter 2, where this dramatic, miraculous event happens. Okay, so in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, this is uh, described just 10 days before Pentecost. The disciples have just seen the Lord Jesus rise to the sky miraculously, right? So Jesus, if you remember the story, he died, he rested on the Sabbath, he rose again on the first day of the week, and then he basically spent 40 days hanging out with his disciples, right? And so on the 40th day, he ascends to heaven, and so we pick up the story right there. The disciples, they go back home. This is Acts 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. Jesus has ascended. It's a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Uh, those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so what was it that preceded this incredible miraculous experience that we read in Acts chapter 2, well, we learn they basically spent 10 days praying together. They spent 10 days praying together. They had just seen Jesus uh, rise up to the sky. They honestly, they had no idea what was coming next. They didn't know what to do next. So they went back to their apartment in the city, and they just started uh, praying together, <laughs> hanging out together, uh, praying together. Now, uh, you know, again, prayer. Most religious people believe in, some, in, in prayer in some form and that we should uh, uh, pray. And certainly, from the testimony of this newborn Christian church, we see how impactful prayer was. They prayed together for 10 days, and then uh, on, the, on the, the 10th day, God shows up in a very present uh, way. And so this idea of prayer, this is our theme today, prayer. Prayer. The early church was rooted in the idea of coming together and praying together. Of course, Jesus himself, while he was uh, with them, he taught that they should pray. He was praying constantly with them. He prayed by himself. He gave us one of the great uh, prayers. In fact, it said that, uh, you know, prayer had existed before Jesus showed up. Our Jewish friends have been praying for thousands of years, as ha have people of many different uh, faiths. But there were two innovations that Christians brought to the prayer. And the first one was the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm reading from the New International Version, so you may remember it from, if you learned it from the King James, you've got another language or whatever. Uh, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so Jesus prayed, he introduced the idea of prayer, he gave this kind of innovative prayer, which is, by the way, very short. You can, you can recite the Lord's Prayer in like 10 seconds. Okay, sometimes we think like prayer has to be this like big, massive thing. Again, the disciples, they prayed together apparently for 10 days. But uh, Jesus' model prayer is quick. It's not something that uh, you have to, you know, take a whole part of your day. It's, it's boom, boom, boom. So prayer, an essential part of being a person of faith, and certainly an essential part of being a Christian. And yet, and yet, despite all of this encouragement, despite the fact that the, the disciples spent 10 days of praying and then this miraculous thing 
happened, many of us struggle with the idea of praying, right, if we're being honest. I mean, I know some of you, you got it figured out and you're just like uh, prayer super people, okay, and you, you just, it's, just, it's part of your experience and you've got it down. But for many of us, uh, praying can be challenging and difficult. And so our question today is what makes the difference? What inhibits us from praying more? All of the religion has been encouraging prayer for thousands of years. Christianity is rooted in prayer. Jesus uh, instructed us and even taught us how to pray, and yet praying can be difficult for many of us. And so what inhibits us from praying more? Well, first of all, look, it ta- prayer takes some time and energy. Even if you, 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 you do it quickly, prayer can take time and mental energy, and most of us are living pretty busy lives, and uh, lives where we don't have a lot of uh, extra energy. You, know, you, you might, uh, with all great intentions, uh, intend to get up in the morning and to pray first thing in the morning, but then you, know, you were up too late last night, and uh, you got to get to work, and before you know it, you're on the subway, or you're, you're driving to work, and uh, you, know, you really, the, the prayer was, it didn't happen. You know what I'm talking about here? Okay, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, somebody said they know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to make sure I'm not just speaking. I'm just confessing myself up here, and you're all leaving me to hang out, hang out and be like, okay, pastor isn't praying enough. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying we're busy, and prayer does take some time and energy, and many of us, you know, we don't feel like we have time and energy. So then the day gets going, and it's go, 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 and, you know, we don't get around to it, and then in the evening, uh, you know, we're tired, and it's very easy for prayer to just become secondary and not happen in our experience. I know this may not be true for everyone, but it's true for many of us, I would imagine. So prayer takes time and energy that we may not feel like we have. Also, we struggle with prayer because we are impatient and we're frustrated in that sometimes we go to prayer to, to, to pray and then the stuff that we're praying for doesn't happen or doesn't ex- come to fruition in the way we anticipated and that can be discouraging and because there's no lack of resp- there's a lack of response in our own minds that just it just, it just discourages us from the very idea of prayer and so we're like I'm just going to take care of business on my own try to be the best person I'm going to be and so that's how we go about our lives okay so these are all contributing to inhibiting our ability to really be about prayer despite the fact the prayer has been such an important part of religious history and that Christian history, certainly, and that Jesus instructed us to pray, and praying has done so many important and good things throughout history. Uh, finally, and I would say this may be the key one when it comes to what inhibits us from praying, is that we don't really believe that prayer does that much. We don't believe that prayer does that much. And I would suggest to you that this belief has been, if not overtly taught, perpetuated by uh, the church. Okay? Uh, I've heard Christians many times explaining a prayer by saying that, you know, prayer isn't for God. That prayer is for us. The idea here is this, that God is omnipotent. God, God has a plan. 
And he's just, he's, he's uh, proceeding with his plan, and he's going to do what he does. And, and omnipotence means he is all power. He's all powerful. And so God is all powerful, and he's not affected by, you know, what we want or desire or what we do. And so he's going to do what we do. So prayer is really for us, so that we will get on the same wavelength with God. Have you heard this before? And so prayer, it, you know, it changes us. And, uh, you know, it, 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 and it makes us, again, on the same wavelength as God, and it helps us. It's good for us, basically. Now, this is undeniably true. Prayer is good for us. I mean, there, there was studies, scientific studies have showed that prayer actually is good for people. Praying <laughs> makes a difference in our, in our psyche. It's good for us. But I would push back about this idea that prayer does not change God because... It's not biblical. If you read the Bible story, you see that when people go to God, God, and the Bible says this in a number, number of places, changes his mind. God's mind is changed because of prayer. Now, again, Christians have had a hard time with this because we're influenced by Greek philosophy from thousands of years ago, and we have this idea of a omnipotent God, a God who's all-powerful and is not uh, bothered by our requests and so on, because he's got a plan, and again, he's just interacting uh, or, or executing his plan. But that is not biblical. That's from the Greeks and their philosophy. The Bible presents a God who changed his mind. You read the Hebrew Bible. You read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. You read about Moses, who goes, and God is like, these people are driving me crazy. And Moses goes, and he's like, God, God, you got to have mercy. And God is literally changed his mind. Okay, I was going to do one thing, and I'm not going to do that thing now, and I'm going to do another thing because you came and you asked me. This happens. Jonah, the story of Jonah, same thing. Got the people, the people adjusted and changed, and God changed. Our prayers make a difference, but because we've been taught for a very long time that prayer doesn't change God, it only changes us, we're like, what is it? I, you know, I, I, I need God to intervene and do something. I need him to change the circumstances. And if, if the, all of this is just God executing his power over this world and we continue to live in a broken world, that's, that's not good enough. And so we give up on the idea of prayer. And yet, and yet, throughout the Bible, you get the in, implication that God changes his mind based on what we ask. Yes, God is all-powerful, but God, God doesn't exercise his power in, in a way where he is only doing what he, he wants all of the time. In fact, again, if you read the Bible story, clearly God is working with some boundaries that he sets up for himself. By the way, if you set up boundaries for yourself, that is not turning over your power. That's just restricting your power and working within a framework in which it's going to be healthy for you to live in right relationship with someone else. If you, if you think relations are based entirely on power, I would bet you've got some pretty unhealthy relationships in your life. A relationship is unhealthy if it's only someone exercising power over someone else. And yet that is the idea that Christians have perpetuated when we talk about the omnipotent God. God is all-powerful, and he's doing what he wants to do. By the way, you start uh, really leaning into the omnipotence thing and that God is all-powerful and everything that's happening in the world is God's will, things get pretty disturbing pretty quickly because I don't know if you're paying attention, but the world is a messed up place. And there are some things 
that you, are, you know and I know are unjust in this world. And if that's part of God's plan, I don't know. That's, I, and there, the, the Bible says there's an enemy at work who's working against God, and a lot of the messed up stuff that's happening in the world is a result of the fact that there's an enemy at work that many of us, at least at one time or another, have made allegiance to, and that's what's messing up things. It's not that God is exercising his power and that every terrible thing in the world that's happening is God's will. That's disturbing. That's for another day. Actually, uh, if you go back to November of last year on avenhoop.org, I think these are still there. Rodrigo's been filming, filming our teaching series. We did a series called Bad Beliefs, and we specifically talked in more detail about this belief uh, that God is ultimately in control of everything. And so if you want to go back and look at that series, Bad Beliefs, again, it should be on the, the website, and there is one uh, on this subject in particular. And so God can be all-powerful and yet be infected by uh, our requests and our desires and our needs because he's living and wanting to live in healthy relationship with us. Um, My wife. Is as close to omnipotent as you're going to get in our family. Okay? She's right there. I start talking about her. She gets nervous and I get nervous. Not always sure we know where this is going, but okay, let's go with it. Okay, so she is as close in our family as we're going to get to omnipotence. I'm all powerful, okay? Um, but she's also very adept at changing based on circumstances, as any good parent is. Uh, two weeks ago, it was Mother's Day. You remember that? Now, I'm sure in her mind she had a desire for what would happen on Mother's Day. A wish, even. And, and there were some things that she may even have expressed that she wished that happened. <laughs> but she heard the cries of her children's heart and her, and her husband's heart. And on Mother's Day, God bless her, she did, I will put this caveat, she did know that she was leaving for Puerto Rico for a girl's trip five days later. Oh. <laughs> fair, 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 fair. I shouldn't have added that. See, that was, that, was, that was bad. Forget that. Okay. All right. Here's what I'm sure in her mind that she had a vision for Mother's Day and it involved things that did not happen on Mother's Day because she heard the cry of her children's heart who said, we would like to go see our beloved Baltimore Orioles in Camden Yards in, ba in Baltimore. <laughs> this is going downhill, it's very fast. Okay, and she, she relented and she sat, God bless her, for three and a half hours in Baltimore at Camden Yards watching the Baltimore Orioles lose. She could have said something no, and that wouldn't have happened. 
She had that power to object to that happening in, in Baltimore and watching that game, right? But she heard the, 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 the desire of her children's heart and her husband's heart, and she adjusted her plan to, to, to fit with the, with the child's plan. And you know what? I, I mean, you can ask her, but I think she enjoyed it. Uh, uh, this is, this is, I'm not saying it was her first choice. I'm not saying, but being with the family, she, I, think, I think the testimony will be, we're not giving her a mic, by the way, not today, not after this, that she enjoyed it. See, this is, this is how God works. God is all-powerful, but he doesn't exercise his power to say, you're going to do whatever I want you to do all the time. Surely God has a desire in his heart for things. He probably, he knows what's best for us, but God adjusts. And you see this throughout. He's always adjusting and adapting and meeting the circumstances and the needs of his kids. Because why? More important than his power is his love. The Bible does not say God is all powerful. The Bible says God is love. That is the defining feature which God wants to be identified by. Not his power, his love. God is love. The picture of God is a God who adapts to the circumstances and the cries and the needs of his kids. And so when Moses goes and says, God, I know you're wanting to act in this way, but please consider your kids. God adapts and changes and adjusts. This is a God of love. Author and theologian Thomas J. Ord, he coined the term omnipotence, putting two words together, uh, love and power. And so he combines these two words, and he wrote this provocative book called The Death of, of Omnipotence and the Birth of Omnipotence. And here he says this. This is a fairly new book, definitely worth reading if you're interested. Uh, this is him speaking in the book. He says, I coined this word, so he came up with this word. I coined this word to stress the priority of love over power in God. Divine love comes logically and conceptually prior to divine power. Omnipotence presumes that we best understand God in general and divine power in particular if we give love pride of place. Divine love preconditions and governs divine power, love comes first. Once we understand this about how God works, everything starts to make sense. God lets us and allows us to do things. He, he, he's, he's given us the ability to have consent. He's not wanting us to be robots. He's not wanting us to be artificial intelligence. He gives us real intelligence and then risks it by saying, Go and, and, and do. I'm here. I'm willing to adjust when that, adjust, that adjusting works. But this is how love works. A relationship that is identified solely or primarily by power is not a healthy relationship. God is love. God is love. God is calling us into a relationship that is rooted in love. And so in order for God to maintain a loving relationship, he keeps boundaries even for himself, not always exercising his omnipotent power. 
power is associated with control, with manipulation. And listen, religions for years have perpetuated the idea that God is manipulating things and he's, and he's, he's, he's shaping things to, to his will alone. But that is not the picture of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is responding to the needs and even the desires of his kids, just like a good parent. God believes in consent. He doesn't force himself on us. Why are the disciples praying for 10 days and then God comes? God does a very uh, uh, intimate thing to them. He, he, he comes and changes Fire comes on them, and they're transformed and changed. But 10 days of them praying and asking God, they don't know what God's going to do, but asking God to intervene in their experience. And so God is a God of consent, and he's like, you want me involved. Now I'm going to be engaged. God invites all of us. This is at the heart of what prayer is. It's not just changing our minds, not just getting us on the right frequency. It, 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 it's, it's God adjusting to our needs. And so when we exercise our, content, our consent, asking God to get involved, then God is like, okay, okay. This is a healthy relationship, not manipulative, not controlling. A God who waits and God who gets involved as we ask him, the God of consent. It's not just about his power. It's about his love for us. And so we think about, okay, well, prayer <laughs> initiates this. As we pray, it's not just our own minds that, that are changed. It's not just our own frequency, but God is changed. He adapts to the needs. And so when we pray, when we ask for things, God is like, now I am empowered and enabled to, to act in this situation. When you pray for somebody, you're giving God permission to get involved in that circumstances in a way that he might not if he wasn't asked because he believes in consent. But when you give him consent, he can get involved. This is the idea of prayer. So what do we do to, to, to enliven our prayer life? How do we access this? How do we give over our consent? There's a bunch of strategies. You can start setting your alarm each day to a dedicated time. I'm going to get up, and now I'm going to invite God and give him consent at this hour to get involved in my experience today. So you can schedule a, a dedicated time. You can create a list of things that we should be praying to for. We, we uh, not to, for, uh, we're going to do this in just a few moments. We're going to have a list, and you're going to put your prayer requests, and our fantastic prayer team is going to go back in this room. By the way, they, they, we have a prayer team every week. They take the requests that come in from Zoom and here and on the screen, and they actually pray for them, like for real. That actually happens, and so they're going to do that. And so that's God, us giving God's consent to get involved in each situation. It doesn't always work out that he gets involved in exactly the way we anticipate but we are giving God consent to get involved and engage. And so you can set a dedicated time. You can create a prayer list. You can use a prayer formula. Jesus initiated one with the Lord's Prayer. Like, here's a way to pray. We can do all of those things. But you know what? Those things are not enough. You know how I know that? Because I've tried these things. And you have too. You've set your alarm to get up at a certain time and say, I'm going to spend five minutes, ten minutes, three minutes in prayer, and you know what you've done? You've missed it. <laughs> and you've forgotten for the first three days after you were like, boom, I'm in. And you were really super successful, and then on day four, you were late for work, and that was it. 
And so the lists alone are not enough. The strategies are alone are not enough. And this is where we need the work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was a person of prayer. He prayed. Luke chapter 5 tells us this insight to Jesus' own personal devotional life. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus was a person of prayer. Jesus prayed in ways that we have never prayed. Jesus was, was committed to prayer. Jesus knew that when you prayed, it did things, and so Jesus prayed. Jesus was more consistent than you will ever be in prayer. Jesus also submitted his own will to God. We're told in one of the most dramatic scenes of Jesus praying in Luke chapter 22 that he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond his disciples. This was on the night before his crucifixion. What, what is he going to do? He's about, he knows what's coming. And so what is he going to do? Is he going to go uh, uh, read a Bible? The Bible, he did that, actually. We did, he did that at the, uh, the Lord's Supper. I sang a hymn together. But when it really came down, what was he going to do? He's going to pray. And so he takes his disciples, and he goes off from them, and he kneels down and he prays. And he says this. This is the prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Now that is pretty profound because Jesus is expressing his desire. If you, if you take this cup from me. <laughs> you think Jesus was excited about what was going to happen? Murdered? Take this cup from me. If you can take this cup from me and we still can accomplish things that need to be accomplished, please take this cup from me. Jesus prayed for something that was not met. His prayer was not answered. The cup was not taken. In fact, Jesus, we're told, drank the cup for us. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed a prayer that wasn't fulfilled. He had to take the cup and he died. He was murdered brutally. He was crucified. He rested on the Sabbath day in the grave. But the good news for us is on the first day of the week, he rose. He conquered death. And the great news for us is that because Jesus has done this, as we confess faith in him, he is able to start working in us, that same spirit who came in Acts chapter 2 when they were up in the, the, the room, and empowers us and part of the empowering is he gives us more faith and as we have more faith we are able to pray more and we are able to trust in him and we are able to ask him and we are able to give him consent and he is able to get involved in our experience and so it all starts with this confession of faith in the Lord Jesus the second innovation that Christians brought to prayer was this the first one was the 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 the, the Lord's prayer the second was this we pray in Jesus name we pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we ask these things because Jesus is the founder of faith. And so as we confess faith in the Lord Jesus, our own faith is strengthened. God starts working in us and our prayer life can grow and grow and grow. And so I would suggest to you this on a very practical level. Instead of setting your alarm clock and saying, I'm going to get up and pray, you set your alarm clock and you start your day with a confession of faith. Something like this. I believe in the power of the resurrection, and I want God's spirit to work within me today. 
That's a confession. You are confessing faith in the Lord Jesus. He is the only one who is going to empower you uh, to be the person that even you want to be and to be in healthy relationship with God, a God who has identified himself as a God of love, not just a God of power, a God who puts primacy love, and he's calling us in a relationship, and as we confess faith in Jesus, who died, rested, and rose again, God starts to give us faith and trust. And so as we confess in him, he builds in us what we need, and then we can pray with the expectation that God is going to work in ways that he wouldn't have worked unless we asked him. And so on this day where we're about to celebrate a baptism, about three people who are confessing faith in a very public way, as we celebrate that, may we also come to faith today and every day in the Lord Jesus, the one who is inviting us into a relationship rooted in love. And may we give our consent for him to be involved in our experience as individuals and as a community today. Amen.